Okay, well, it's, it's a well-known story uh, for us here in the United States. Every year, school children are taught about the pilgrims who came to North America, and they were searching, many of them, most of them, searching for religious freedom. They were called Puritans, and many of you know why they were called Puritans. The Church of England had, uh, they, were, they were wanting to separate from the Church of England. They, they believed that the Church of England was corrupt, and they desired a pure religion, one that was separate from the adoration of the saints, one that, that didn't have scripted prayer, but allowed them to, to just freely express from their hearts their, their worship and their words uh, towards God. They, they wanted a, a religion that was free from the rituals that were in the Church of England. They wanted a simple service where there was a, a sermon preached on the Bible, and it was it centered around this, this preached words, much like what we do here today. That's what they were looking for. But the problem was is that the Church of England was intolerant towards that. They didn't want to allow them to have this service. And, and anyone who, re, who, who rejected the, the Book of Common Prayer or, or the rituals that were considered to be the only way to do church by the Church of England, if, if, when the Puritans rejected this, they were actually hunted down. They were systematically hunted down, especially the leaders. Some of them were, were put in prison. Some were tortured. They were persecuted for their faith. And they were desperate for religious freedom. And so the Puritans sailed to North America, and they established colonies where they could worship freely. You know the story. One of the Puritans, in particular, was a man by the name of Roger Williams. Now, Roger Williams was a pastor, and initially, he and his wife, when they came to North America, when they landed in Massachusetts, and and they built their home, they initially thought that they had found what they were looking for. They'd found this place where they could worship freely, where they weren't going to be persecuted for their faith and their choices in worship. But soon, Williams ran into trouble. You see, he had beliefs that were a little different from the popular thinking there in, among the colonists there in, in Massachusetts, among the, the Puritan colonies. He believed that laws should not be made to enforce worship or a particular kind of worship. In other words, he said, yeah, let's make up laws to enforce the last six of the Ten Commandments, but not the first four. There should be no laws enforcing it. There should be a separation between what we, what we do as, as a government and, and what we do as— there should be a separation between the church and the state. That's what, that's what he believed in. And he also believed in something else that made, made him really unpopular. He said that this land that we're occupying here, it belonged to people before we got here. Even though the king of England says, yes, we claim all of this just by virtue of our presence, the reality is, Williams argued, this belongs to the Indians and we should be paying for it if we live here. We should be purchasing it from them. He thought it was wrong for them to just go in and, and, and just assume that, that it was theirs just because they were there living on it. And in, because he believed this way in less than five years, after ri- arriving in North America, he found himself banished by the local Christian government due to his quote-unquote dangerous opinions. In the middle of a blizzard, he was forced to flee his home, leaving behind his wife and his small child to fend for themselves in the, in the New England winter. 
He traveled 55 miles on foot and finally made it to an Indian tribe that was friendly to him. Roger Williams had, had learned the language of the Indians. He, he had become acquainted with who they were, and, and, and they took him in, and they gave him shelter during the harsh winter. Williams longed for religious community. He was not somebody, he was not a, uh, someone who just wanted to isolate himself. He didn't want to just go off and do his own thing. He longed for Christian community. He longed to be part of a place where, where he could grow and, and, and be with fellow believers. But those claiming to be pure followers of Christ, those, those claiming to be Bible believers, were the ones who denied Roger Williams the very rights to religious liberty that they themselves longed for. Although we might think of this story and, and remember this story and say, how in the world could Christian people be so unjust? I mean, these, these people were the ones that were persecuted in England for the, their desires to worship differently. They come to the America, and then they start doing that very same thing to their own people. How could that happen? How could Christians behave that way? How could people be so unjust? The reality is, all of us are capable of being unjust. That's, I mean, that's the truth. We can all be so caught up in our lives, and, and, and I know that, that this describes me at times. I'm not proud to admit it, but this is the truth, that we can be so caught up in our lives, in our agenda, in our way of thinking, that we can actually overlook people that are right around us who need our help. Completely ignore them. We can have a voice. We can have political capital, if you will. We can have power and position and fail to advocate for those who are in need, for those who need our help, for those who may not have a voice. We can believe in a God who gives people the power to choose and then also reject people who choose differently than we do. We're guilty of injustice. As individuals and also as a church, we're guilty of injustice. But thankfully, the Bible gives us hope. God, God not only is, is wonderful at forgiving, and we praise God for that, I don't minimize that at all, but he not only forgives us of our injustice, he shows us how you and I can actually live just lives according to the values of justice that we hold, and how we can, as a church, be actually known as a people of justice. Today we're continuing our series on the book of Acts that's titled calling for justice. And we're looking at, we're going to be looking at what God has to say to religious people who resist justice, what he has to say to them. We're also going to see how, how God is able to take anyone, no matter how unjust we may have been, no, no matter how guilty we are of committing injustice or, or the neglect of acting and so committing injustice by, by our neglect of, of doing something, how God is able to take each one of us and he's able to make us a powerful force, powerful advocates for justice in our world today. The title of the message this morning is Welcome Justice. And before we get into our text, I'd like to just pause for prayer. Heavenly Father, oh God, open our ears. Open our eyes to see your plan for us. And open our hearts to receive your power to experience that. Thank you for the words of life that are in this book that we call the Bible. 
and may we receive them with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles. You have them right in front of you if you need a pew Bible or you can open your smart device, whatever you'd like to do. Please open your Bibles to the book of Amos. We're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to start off with verses 21 and 22. And while you're going there, I'd just like to make an observation that having been in a place where you have to call for justice, that's a tough place to be in. Here's why. When you have to call for justice, it's because you're having to ask people to change. That's always difficult. But you're having to ask people to change who are already comfortable. It's tough to change when you're comfortable. But that's what is required when you have to call for justice. As, Pi as Pastor Michael mentioned last Sabbath, Amos lived during a time of prosperity and wealth for Israel. This was a time when King Jeroboam II was reigning. He had a long and successful reign. He was able to reclaim lands that Israel had lost over the years and reestablish borders to the places where they had been during the reign of David. Successful reign here under King Jeroboam II. During this time that he was reigning, Israel's perennial enemies, these powerful enemies that were constantly giving Israel trouble like Egypt, or Assyria, or even Babylon, they were all largely inactive. They weren't doing much. And so what happened was that, that Israel was able to step into this power vacuum and control lucrative international trade routes. As you're probably aware of some geography, Israel is located between Mesopotamia and Egypt, and there was these trade routes that they were able to, to, to take over, and they were able to, to get really wealthy by controlling these trade routes. So they were doing very well. And although Assyria would eventually conquer Israel in about 30 years after Amos gave this message, when Amos gave his message, Israel's leaders could look around at what was happening in their nation and find no reason for concern. Everything seemed fine. They were doing really well. The economy was good. Things seemed to be going really well. The leaders of Israel lived in luxury. Amos tells us that they had multiple homes. He refers to their homes as mansions. These homes were lavishly furnished. But the problem was is that these leaders who were living so well during this time had acquired their wealth because of unjust business practices. Through injustice, they'd acquired their wealth. They used their economic advantages to impose taxes and rent upon the poor and reduce them to slaves, basically. It was they were doing unfair business. They were paying off people so that they didn't get caught. And there was nothing that these poor people, that these people that were oppressed, there was nothing that they could do about it. They, they, were, they were oppressed, and, and, and the wealthy were doing very well, and they were living comfortable, and so they were fine with the way things were. Now, the irony of this whole situation is that these same people who were oppressing the poor, who were doing unjust business practices, they were showing up in church. And they were singing the songs. And they appeared to be devoted worshipers of God because they were bringing the prescribed sacrifices and they were offering these in the prescribed way. And so by all appearances, they seemed to be just wonderful Christians. It, they were even, they even talked about, we are waiting for the day of the Lord. And in our terminology today, that would, that would mean we are waiting for the second coming. 
They seem to be devoted followers of God. So calling for change to these people would not be easy. Amos would have, to, would have to confront these powerful people and risk the outcomes, risk the retaliation. But more than that, what would make this especially difficult for Amos is that he would have to call out and challenge leaders who could justify themselves that they were good religious people. How could Amos be right? Look at us the way we worship. To wake them up to the reality of their unjust practices, God rebukes these people with the strongest language possible. Listen to what he says in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. This is God speaking. I hate, this is the first two words in the New International Version, I hate, God says. And then he backs up and, and takes another try. I despise, it's more than just hate as if that wasn't enough, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Rarely in the Bible does it say that God hates something. But it's even more unexpected when it says what God hates here. It says he hates your worship. I mean, throughout the Bible, God is constantly calling people to worship. He's, he's saying, come and worship. He, you, you read the books of Moses, and you see all kinds of detail about worship. God knows that worship is the central part of a growing spiritual experience. He knows that we need this, and so he calls us to worship. He tells us how to worship. He says a lot about worship. Worship is one of the identifying features of a genuine follower of God. And yet here in Amos 5, 21 and 22, God says that I hate and I despise your worship services. Strong language. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to get their attention. Now when worshipers in this time would bring a sacrificial animal to, to the temple to offer to God— the priests there would help them do this, and, and they, would, they would bring the animal. But before the priests would offer the animal as a sacrifice, they would do something. They would inspect the animal very carefully, and they would make sure that this animal was a fit representation of the Messiah, that it was without spot or blemish. It had no defect at all. And if the animal had some kind of defect, it would not be accepted. The priests would reject it. Here, using this same language in verse 22, God rejects the work of the priests in Israel and does the work of the priests himself. He says, even though you bring me offerings, I will not accept them. Now, these worshipers, they, were, they had this, these elaborate worship services, religious services. They may have been bringing offerings that were without spot or without blemish, but their lives were opposed to justice, and so God categorically rejects them. Their offerings may have appeared unblemished, but they had no desire for an unblemished character. So God rejects it. Absolute language. There is no space in here for anything to be accepted. I mean, it, it's, not that, it's not that their songs were bad, but everything else was good. It's not that. He, he completely rejects their worship service. There's nothing salvageable in their religious services, even though they had the appearances of true worship. It's a sobering statement here in the Bible. 
Now, to understand how this whole situation came about, because the natural thinking is, well, does this apply to us? <laughs> to, to understand how, how this, this whole thing may have, may have come about, it helps to look at Israel's history. After Solomon's reign, Israel separated from the northern kingdom in the north, okay, Israel in the north, to Judah in the south. Now, Israel was a much bigger territory. It, it, it covered much more land and, and, and more people. But Judah had something very important going for them. They had Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they had Solomon's temple. This focal point, this, this worship center that every follower of God, the one true God, the creator God, identified with. And three times every year, God told all of the people to come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, Israel's king, he was afraid. He thought to himself, if all of my people follow what God says, and three times a year they go down to Jerusalem and they worship there, then there's a good chance that they could turn back and become faithful to Judah and, and maybe reunite and, and, and they might get rid of me. And so he did something really strategic. He decided to build a place of worship in a very significant town called Bethel. Now, this town had great religious significance, okay? I mean, this is where Abraham built an altar and, and worshiped God. Bethel, you may have recognized that name. This is where Jacob, on the night that he was fleeing for his life, he, he rested there and put a rock under his head as a pillow. And there, in the nighttime, he had a vision he saw this ladder, this ladder reaching to heaven, and, and angels were going up and down on that ladder. This, this, this picture of what Jesus would ultimately do. He would connect heaven and earth. Significant place. I mean, the ark was kept here during the time of the judges. It had deep religious significance. But it was also, notice, convenient. There's Bethel right here. It was conveniently located on a road, a major thoroughfare, Samaria was the capital of Israel, it was conveniently located on a major thoroughfare that the people of Israel would need to travel in order to get to Jerusalem. Conveniently located at the southern tip of Israel. So as people traveled on the road, if they ever had it in their thinking to go and follow God's command to assemble in Jerusalem, they would walk past Bethel. And there the king would say, hey, everyone, you don't have to finish this journey. We have a wonderful place here for you to worship. The Bible tells us that the king of Israel actually built a golden calf and said the very same things that were said when the children of Israel were in Sinai waiting for Moses and built a golden calf. He said, here is the God that delivered you from Egypt. That is what the worship was about in Israel. It was a man-made form of worship. The king chose his own priests that God had not chosen. He chose a place that God had not chosen. He chose a style of worship that God had not chosen. And he also chose his own date for a special religious festival that God had not chosen. God says, I abhor this. I hate this. Amos is speaking to a people who are trying to worship God in a way that suited themselves. 
It was comfortable for them. It made sense to them. It appealed to their sensitivities. And they set up this form of worship that they just were particularly fond of. Now, there's a reason God does not say in Amos 5.21, I hate my religious festivals. I hate my assemblies. He doesn't say that. Notice what it says. Look at the language there in verse 21. God says, I hate your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench. He goes on to say in verse 23, away with the noise, not of my songs, away with the noise of your songs. This is your idea, he's saying. This is your stuff, and you're making it look like it's all for me, when in reality, it's all for you. No matter how good it looked, they were not, their worship was not about God's will. It was about their will. And injustice, please do not miss this, injustice always results when we pursue our will. That is the natural outcome of pursuing our will, is injustice. Perhaps the most striking example of this, there's many examples, but perhaps the most striking is the one we find in the New Testament, how the Jewish religious leaders treated Jesus. I mean, Jesus did not do what they wanted him to do. They wanted a Messiah that was trained in their schools, that thought the way they thought, They wanted a Messiah that followed their laws and that was there to set them free from Rome. That's what they were looking for in their Messiah. Jesus was none of these things. And so they did what every offended religious person is prone to doing. They justified their injustice in their treatment of him. I mean, that's what we do. When, when we as religious people, when we get offended, we do some pretty underhanded stuff, but we are able to justify it pretty well. And, that, and that's what they did. They said it's in the best interest of our nation that we get rid of this man. And so they arrested Jesus even though they had no charge, legitimate charge against him. He'd done nothing wrong. This is why they arrested him at night and tried him at night in secret with false witnesses. They wanted to ensure that they got their way, that their will would be done. They pressured the Roman governor to kill Jesus even after the Roman governor, not a Christian, the Roman governor said, I find no fault in this man. And then they asked that Jesus be crucified. Now, this request went blatantly against the law of Moses, and they knew it. This was not just a mistake They accused Jesus of blasphemy. And according to Leviticus 24, 14, the law of Moses gave very specific instructions on how to punish blasphemy. Crucifixion was not it. If someone was guilty of blasphemy, they were to take that person outside of the camp and throw rocks on them until they were executed. These religious leaders were committed to the Bible. They knew what the Bible said. They had beautiful worship services, elaborate prayers, just beautiful music. But they violated justice because they had made an idol out of their will. It's easy to do. They did what seemed right to them. That's why the Bible is so important today, my church family. We live in an age of growing biblical illiteracy. We live in an age where absolute truth is questioned. We need to know what the Bible says. Because if we just rely upon what seems right to us, it results in some really bad outcomes. 
The death of Jesus is one of them. But even though they treated Jesus unjustly, I just love this about Jesus. Even though they treated him, Psalm 40 verse 8 tells us how Jesus responded to all of the injustice that was brought to him as he followed God's will. This is what, this is this prophecy about Jesus. Hebrews also picks this up and, and, and describes Jesus in this way. He says, I delight to do your will, O God. This was the, the theme of Jesus' heart. He delighted in the will of God, even if that meant going to the cross, even if that meant being treated unjustly. He delighted in God's will. And by delighting, not in his own will, but in the will of God, Jesus did something very powerful. He welcomed justice for the human race. His death on the cross condemned sin. Is sin okay? You look at the cross and you can see how God feels about that. God will not stand for sin. It costs the life of his son. But in also pursuing and seeking and being committed to the will of God, by doing that, Jesus also welcomed justice to every one of us who have been oppressed by sin. Every one of us who have been damaged and hurt by sin. He offers us freedom. He offers justice. If trying hard to do right was the solution to injustice, the religious leaders would have found it. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they, they were experts in trying hard to do right. But Jesus came to do something that we could not do for ourselves. I have an older brother, and when we were little, it's just, it's just two of us, he and I, when, when my older brother and I were little, we would often play together. We spent our days just playing a lot. We had a, we had a lot of opportunity to play together. Sometimes we'd play ball together. Sometimes it was Legos. Sometimes it was just a game that we had made up and we're jumping around on a pile of dirt, whatever it might be. But no matter what it was, often these times of playing together would end in a fight. I don't think anybody can relate to that. There were moments where we played well together, but often times, no, it didn't matter what we were doing, we'd end up, I was, and it was usually his fault. <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding. We, we both, we both contributed, <laughs> All right? But something very significant took place when my dad would play with us. And when my dad would play with us, my brother and I, we were still prone to fighting. We're still prone to cheating. We're still prone to, to doing things that would provoke the other person. But when my dad played with us, things were different. We'd go outside and we'd play ball or we'd be wrestling in the, in the living room or something like that. But when my dad was there and things started to get a little sideways, he would always bring it back. His influence would ensure that we didn't cheat. His influence would ensure that we played fair. His influence would ensure that everyone had a good time. My dad did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Our efforts to do right will not bring about justice. Because even if we're sincere, even if we want to do what's right, pursuing what we want, pursuing our will, even if it's well-intentioned, will always end up in, in injustice. But we can experience justice. Even though we're incapable of, of producing it ourselves, we can experience justice when we welcome the author of justice into our lives. Listen to what it says here in Amos chapter 5 and verse 24. This is the word of God to you and to me. 
But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. There's a reason why the Bible does not say, but go out and try hard to do justly. It doesn't say that. Go and work on that a little bit more. Try, try hard not to be unjust. Unjust. No, no, no. It says it comes from outside of ourselves. Let justice roll on. We let it happen. We welcome it. That's how we receive injustice into our lives. We let it roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-ending stream, a never-failing stream. God tells us that we can welcome justice. And this imagery, it hit home to the people that were listening to Amos' message because they lived in a really dry climate during the summertime. There were times where the rains would come and the rains would cause these little streams to, to form again and they would start running again. It would be lush and there would be greenery all over the place. But during the hot, dry months of summer, these riverbeds would become bone dry. And so they understood that unless they found water somewhere, that they weren't going to survive. They understood clearly the importance of water, the connection between water and their survival, water and life. Having water was life to them. They understood that they were totally dependent upon the water given to them in order, in order to survive. And so God compares justice to water, this life-giving influence of justice. He says, let it roll on like a river, like a never-ending stream. Now, there's a reason we get worried and start, and start to get kind of worked up when we're in a drought, right? Kind of in a drought right now. Actually, we're fully in a drought right now. And there's a reason that we get worried. Why? We, we, I mean, we start to look really closely at the snowpack, right? We start to look really closely at the, the levels in the reservoirs, and we, and we wonder, how is this going to turn out? We don't have enough water. We get worried about it because we cannot control the weather. In spite of our modern sophistication, we cannot make it rain when we want it to rain. We're not able to do that. We're entirely dependent upon God for water still. And in the same way, we are entirely, this, this is what Amos is talking about, we are entirely dependent on God for justice. It's just like a river. You cannot, you cannot live without it, but you also cannot make it happen. All you can do is let it roll. Let it roll on down. Knowing our desperate need, God gives us justice like a river. I love that imagery. In other words, God is not stingy. He doesn't give us a few trickles. He doesn't just give us barely enough. He gives us more than enough. It's abundant. It's like a river, and it, it's a river that never ends. It's a never-failing stream. This is how God gives to us. It's an abundance. The question is, we, you know, we can't create this, but what we can do is we can hinder it. We can stand in the way of, of, of justice. We can hinder it. We can divert it by seeking our own will. And that's the question. Will we hinder injustice by seeking our own will? Or will we welcome it by accepting the will of God for us? After a long New England winter had passed, Roger Williams emerged from his shelter that the Indians had provided from them. And he did something that would change the course of U.S. history. 
Roger Williams went to a local Indian tribe and he purchased a section of land that today is Rhode Island. He purchased that from the Indians and he set up a government there. Now he was in charge, but he did something very significant. Instead of saying, all right, now everybody's got to think like I do, what he said was, I'm going to set up a government where the liberty of conscience is protected. This, this is huge. Long before Thomas Jefferson ever called for a separation wall between church and state, Roger Williams had established the first government in the world based upon this principle where religious liberty was protected. And here we are today. We get to enjoy this legacy of someone who was willing to let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. He was willing to do that. By doing this, he was creating an environment for people to believe differently about God than he did. That would be uncomfortable, but he said it's more important for justice to roll on, for the will of God to be protected and recognized, that everyone have the opportunity to choose, everyone have the right to hold the opinions that are according to their convictions. He realized that that was more important. And today we live in the United States of America where we can worship freely. But today, I don't think I have to tell you, this principle is being challenged. This separation of church and state is being challenged. This right to believe how we believe and believe according to our convictions, and that to be okay and affirmed, is challenged. More and more, our society is becoming intolerant of religious views that are outside of of the norm and what is accepted. But instead of getting angry, instead of getting mad, or instead of running off and saying, oh, we just need to separate ourselves from this whole mess, God is calling his people to welcome justice. God is calling his people to stand as advocates for justice. And I'd like to just talk about a couple of ways that we can do that. You can vote. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what to vote for. I'm not going to get political here. But I'm going to tell you what what to vote for as far as issues. Let's vote for the separation of church and state. Let's let's let our vote count when it it comes to laws that would would keep us from being able to to keep the Sabbath, that allow us to to ask for a a religious exemption from our employers to say, hey, I'm a Sabbath-keeping Christian, and I would like to have Sabbaths off. I'll work other days, I'll work other times, but from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown, I'd like to have Sabbaths off. It's because we have a separation of church and state that that, that we have that. We can vote to keep that. There are laws that 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 are constantly pushing against that blessing of being able to practice religion according to our convictions. You have a voice. You can advocate for those who are treated unfairly. You have resources. I mean, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a ministry called Religious Liberty. And we have attorneys that, that go and go to work for people who are being persecuted, who are being unfairly treated, who are being, um, yeah, not, not treated right because of religious practice. We can support religious liberty with our funds, with our giving. Here in the church, we can also stand for religious liberty. We can respect people's rights 
to believe the way they believe. I mean, if you're like me, you've seen some pretty heated arguments about the love of God. People get real angry. We can respect people's rights to believe the way they believe. That's okay. And I'm so proud of our church family here because that is, is one of the characteristics that we have here. That, that people could come and, 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 and worship here in church and, and have Bible studies together in our Bible classes. And they can have differences of opinion and disagree and afterwards still be family, still, still be talking to each other, still wanting to get together. That is a beautiful thing, but that doesn't just happen. That's an intentional thing that we decide here. We say this is who we are. We are a church family. And so whether we believe the same or not on certain things, we're still family. Yeah, we can stand for religious liberty here. And we can stand for religious liberty in our own personal lives. How? By seeking God's will. It's, it's profound. I mean, the default in my mind, I'm guessing it's similar for you, is to say, what do I want to do? <laughs> That's the default. This is a radical step to say, God, what is your will here? When I enter my house, am I asking, what is my will or what is God's will? When I enter my place of work, is it my will or is it God's will? When I plan my vacation or plan my future or just plan my afternoon, is it my will or is it God's will? When we seek God's will, we are seeking justice. On our own, we make a mess of justice. Our church, we're guilty. Individuals, we're guilty. But God has provided a way for his followers and his church to actually be known for justice. We can boldly take a stand against injustice by welcoming God's justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for talking to us straight. Lord, we justify ourselves so easily. Lord, we tell ourselves that everything is fine. But may we hear you speaking to us that justice does not come from us, but it comes from you. Oh God, may we let your justice roll through our lives like a river, like a never-ending stream. May we welcome it in our homes. May we welcome it in our church. May we welcome it in our community. For Jesus' sake, amen.